Let me invite you now to grab a Bible, and uh, if you're new to Grace Band, we, um, we try to study books, maybe not word, I mean line by line, but we try to work our way through a book. We're in the midst of working through Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah now, and we're all the way up to chapter 14. So if you'll follow as I read a portion of it, um, beginning in chapter 14, verse 1. Verse 1 reads like this, and and then I'm going to pause. The, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Now, hold it right there. From verses 2 through 6, you're going to get a description of the severity of the drought. So I wanted you to see what this is all about before I started reading it. It's a drought, and it's going to tell you how severe it is, and then there's going to be this plea and response from God. Here we go. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. Her people lament on the, gra- on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns, they find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads. Because of the ground that is dismayed, Since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O you hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus says the Lord concerning this people. They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. The Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures, it stands forever. Guys, uh, many of you have taken a course that I, taught, uh, that I teach around here, I've done it several times. Um, it's, a, it's a course designed to help you in your own study of God's word. I, I call it Profiting from the Word. I stole that title from a title of an R.C. Sproul book by that same name, Profiting from the Word. 
what I do in the course is just try to give you some, some um, I don't know, insights and some, some things that will help you as you sit before God's Word and try to interpret it for your own benefit. And some of you, many of you, have, have sat very politely in that course, and I hope beneficially, as I listed 11 or 12 little, oh, we'll call them rules, that you must keep in mind when you're reading God's Word and seeking to interpret it and interpret it correctly. At the end of my giving those 11 or 12 little rules, I always close by making reference to Martin Luther. Martin Luther gave some instructions as, about, as to how to study God's Word. And one of the things that Martin Luther did is that he used three questions. He would study a passage, and then he had three questions that he would ask himself about the passage. And then I give you my paraphrased version of Martin Luther's questions. The first question, uh, again, paraphrasing Martin Luther, this is, the, what, this is what I do. I ask myself, what did I learn about God from this passage? What does this passage teach me about God? Um, It may be nothing more than a reminder of something that I already knew. But, But be that as it may, I am here sitting before God's Word, and I want to learn more about who God is, what He loves and what He hates and what He promises and what He condemns. I think you know this, but Jesus himself said in, in John 17 that eternal life is to know Him. So as I study this book, I want to I step back and I want to say, okay, if eternal life is to know Him, what does this passage teach me about the God that I want to know? Okay, guys, with all that in mind, tell me, what does this passage, Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, what does this passage teach me about God? There are a couple of things inside it. there usually is more than one. There's a couple of things inside the passage that I think could vie for our attention. For instance, this drought. Did God send that drought? I mean, it's a bad drought. It's a pretty severe drought. Did God send that? Is the weather a creature? Is the weather nothing more than another creature that does God's bidding? I mean, that would be a nice study. We could go to the book of Job and we could spend some time looking at that and and try to learn something about who God is as a result of this this statement about a drought. But as I read this passage, the the part of it that stood out to me, in fact, (laughs) stood out in such a way that it was just downright jarring, are verses 11 and 12. Can I read those again? The Lord said to me, 
do not pray for the welfare of this people. That is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah about the nation of Israel. Don't pray for them. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Um, (laughs) What do I learn about God from that statement? Actually, it's a command. It's a command issued to Jeremiah, God's prophet. What does that command tell me about God? Well, I, I see what you're doing, Dr. Young, but, uh, but I mean, you've got to understand that uh, 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 Jeremiah just must have got a little bit carried away here. I mean, because, I mean, what that seems to teach, uh, you know, just on the first blush, I mean, what it seems to teach is that, that, um, that there's a red line somewhere and, 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 and that Israel has crossed that red line. And uh, once you cross it, that's it. I mean, if I could, if I could say it just a little bit differently... Um, what it seems to teach, or imply at least, is that there's a limit with God. You know, uh, in response to, to Israel's pursuit, and perhaps mine too, <laughs> uh, my pursuit of and commitment to idols, uh, in the course of my doing that, there comes a point in time when God says, that's it. I've never, I've never read anything like that before, and, and uh, you know, and, you know, I, you know, it must be, it must be a, 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 some kind of misprint, and and uh, maybe, maybe I tell you, maybe you can help us out, Doctor Young, by by telling us about the Greek or the Hebrew. I forget which one it is, you know, but maybe you can tell about what the original language said. You know, you can do that. Well, I can do that. By the way, it's the New Testament written in Greek. It's the Old Testament written in Hebrew. But I can promise you this, that the Hebrew words don't change a thing. They might change the order or the sequence of the words. But the command is left unchanged by looking at the Hebrew. And the command is, you can stop praying for them. Because they can offer whatever sacrifices they want to offer. But I'm not going to accept them. Guys, um, this is not the only place where you find a statement like this. As, as jarring as it may be, it was to me, maybe, maybe, but as jarring as it may be to some of you, this is not the only place that you find something like this. In fact, uh, just with a very little research, you can find several 
There's one in 1 Samuel 8, 18, which we won't look at, but there's a couple of right here in the book of Jeremiah that I, I will mention. One's in chapter 7, verse 16, and you find these words. Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede for I will not hear you. That's in chapter 7, verse 16. Then in chapter 16, you get something similar. Do not enter the house of mourning or go to lament or grieve for them for I have taken away my peace from this people. My steadfast love and mercy declares the Lord. Um, I, I think the one that is the clearest and, and by its clarity, it's, it's so off-putting. It's found in the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. Four verses, I'm going to read them to you. This is in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24. Um, and it is God speaking, and he says this. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would not, would not have any of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Wow. I see what you've done, Dr. Young. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it now. Um, what you've done is just given us a bunch of Old Testament passages, but, but I, I don't ever hear jesus saying anything like that really i mean do you do you honestly think that jesus would be in disagreement with something that's not a chance but let me assure you he does say something like this and he says it of all places in the sermon on the mount matthew chapter 7 and, and if anything it's even a little bit more off-putting than, than what you find here. Can I read it to you? Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Jesus is speaking and he says this. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs. Lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Ooh, dogs and pigs? I mean, the filthiest creatures in that culture? And Jesus is likening people who take the message of the kingdom and devalue it and calling them dogs and pigs? And beyond that, he's saying, don't waste your time. Don't throw those pearls out there before those pigs and swines. Don't do it. Um, folks, we Christians are to be slow to judge. Um, 
We're to be forgiving. We are to extend mercy. And yet we are also to wisely discern the true, as best we can, the character of people and not indefinitely continue to proclaim the gospel um, to those who so adamantly reject it. Now, because even, I mean, I was uncomfortable even saying that. I went to one of my heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I, and I got his book on the Sermon on the Mount down. And I read again what he had to say about Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. And here's what Lloyd-Jones had to say. He said, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6 is, is, a, is an illustration of the genius of Jesus. How so? How is this such genius? Okay. <clears throat> In the first five verses of Matthew 7, he says, don't judge. When it comes to this idea, this notion of condemning people, none of your business. Stop it. Don't do it. But just so that people would not misunderstand him and draw the wrong conclusion and conclude that we should never make any kind of discerning call, he then add verse 6. If he had stopped at verse 5, we might have all concluded, well, you know, that we can never do anything. But he doesn't stop there. He adds verse 6. Because, you see, if we didn't have verse 6, there would, be, there would be no such thing as church discipline. We would never be able to expose heresy because all we have is those first five verses. But he adds verse 6. And he says, in essence, no. You are not to commit the final judgment. He condemns a censorious spirit. But then he adds, we are to exercise a, a discernment, a wisdom, a judgment. Because you see, there's a limit. There's a red line. So, <clears throat> back to um, our text. Let me suggest what I think Jeremiah 14 and numerous others like it teach us about God. Here's what I think they teach. That there is a day when the door of grace slams shut. Ooh, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm still not very comfortable with that. You know, um, um, that seems so um, harsh. Well, let me, let me offer what I hope is a, a piece of defense. Um, in theological circles, it's called a theodicy. Um, for those who are, uh, are a tad uncomfortable about this being this limit thing, door of grace slamming shut thing, uh, that's a little bit uh, too harsh. Let me, let, me, let, me see. let me use an illustration which I hope will help. 
just a made-up story. There was these five guys um, who um, were friends, neighbors, and they loved to play poker with each other. They loved to play poker, you know, they'd get together and smoke a cigar and drink a beer or two, you know. And, but their wives really disapproved of this behavior. And so one of the five men uh, had a little farm, and in the back of the farm was a, was a barn, had two stories in it, and a room at the top. And so what they would do is a couple times a month, they would get together, and they would go into this, this room and the second story of the barn, and they would, um, they would play poker and, you know, smoke their cigars. And there was a door, um, and they locked the door to keep their wives from, you know, barging in on them. <clears throat> but uh, uh, the, the owner had given a key to, the, to the, the, the locked door to all of the five guys. They all had a key to the door right there in their pocket. They had a key to the door right there. I mean, they got the key right there. All right. So uh, one day they're, they're playing poker and uh, one of them uh, says, uh, I think I smell smoke. And um, the other guy didn't pay much attention and, and a minute or so later said, yeah, I, I, I smell some smoke. So he gets up and he goes and looks out the window. And sure enough, there's a brush fire, not too far away, and pretty serious one. And and uh, and uh, and it looks like it's headed right towards them. And so the guy at the window says, "Hey guys, there's a fire out here. You know, it's coming right our way." And another one says, "Well, it's okay. Let's finish this hand, and um, and then we'll um, and then we'll you know because we all got the key to the door right here in our pocket, and then we'll open the door and, and get on out of here." Okay, let's change the story. We're going to change one detail of the story. We're going to take the key out of everybody's pocket. Nobody's got a key now. Same story. Five guys sitting around a table, smoking cigars. Uh, One of them says, I think I smell smoke. He gets up, goes to the window, and sure enough, there's a brush fire, pretty serious one. It seems to be headed their way. And he says, guys. Guys, there's a fire. There's a fire, and it's headed right our way. Now, ladies and gentlemen, knowing that I do not any longer have the key to the locked door in my pocket, what does that do to my response to that information? Do you, do you think that, that just maybe <clears throat> that they might be a little bit more urgent? <clears throat> do you think that the, the prospect of a fire outside would, would, would be taken a bit more seriously? You see, folks, here's my point. Because the evangelical church of the 21st century has not told men this truth, this one, the one that says that there is a day coming when the door of grace will slam shut, because we have not told men that truth and we've assured them that they've got the key right here in their pocket, that they're in charge and that they might come to Christ when they get good and ready. 
what we've done is that we've created a false sense of peace leading to a lack of urgency over men's souls. Oh, no big deal. I'll take care of that when I get good and ready. You know, maybe even on my deathbed because I got the key in my pocket. But if we were to tell them that they have no key or if we were to tell them that there comes a day when the door of grace slams shut there might just be a a greater sense of urgency that mankind might have over their souls. Who knows, men might get more serious over the the value of their souls and the value of the message of the kingdom. They might get more serious about their desperate need of mercy over how to prepare for eternity if we would just tell them that one day there's going to come a knock on the door. But it will be the last one. You see, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm saying is instead of this being harsh, I don't view it as harshness at all. I view it as being evangelistically kind. It's being kind to let the Bible direct us in our thoughts about God. Hmm, what a novel concept. It's being evangelistically kind to do just as Jeremiah is instructed to do and as Jesus tells us we must do, as complex as that may be. It's kind to tell men that God does not exist to do your bidding. Here's what I call the lack of kindness. We haven't told them this. And so they're lulled into a stupor over their souls, thinking, I got the key right here in my pocket. And I'll get to this whenever I want to. But we haven't told them that there's going to come a day when there's going to be a knock. There's going to be an appeal. But it will be the last one. You know, guys, I think we all can agree about this much. 
that none of us, at least I don't consider myself mature enough nor spiritual enough to make a call as to who's a pig and who's a dog or, or to even make a call about when there's been enough. And so we want to, at least I want to err on the side of mercy and as long as oxygen is being inhaled, I want to plead with men over their souls. But folks, a part of that plea A part of our job, a part of that message is to inform them. That a red line exists. I I didn't read verse 10 when I read the text. Oh yes, I I did read verse 10. But um, the statement there is that these people have loved to wander and they have not restrained their feet because they just like wandered all the time and so my friend this morning if you feel estranged from God I think it would be worth your asking yourself who the real stranger is because in this instance God didn't move away from Israel Israel moved away from God Which is why he gives the command to Jeremiah that he does in verses 11 and 12. That pursuit of other gods, that swine-like devaluing of the message of the gospel, that can only be changed by the rebirth, yes. But But you must know this. You who are in a state of spiritual stupor. A red line exists. And if and when you cross it. The door of grace will slam shut. Oh, might we never be guilty of contributing to the lethargy of men over their souls. That is unkind. We must plead today and tomorrow that they must do something about their estrangement from God. Never encouraging them to think, what's the rush? We must preach a friendly heaven. But we must also preach an urgent need to get there. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I I viewed a YouTube by R.C. Sproul several, oh, probably a couple years ago now, and it was a question and answer, and uh, one of the questioners asked the question that really riled R.C. and you can, you, can, you can find it, the YouTube. And R.C. looked at his audience and he says, what's the matter with you people? And he goes on to explain what he thought was the problem. And, and, and I, I, I couldn't agree more, folks. 
the, the Christianity of the 21st century is so man-centered, not God-centered. God is portrayed as waiting patiently and even respectfully on, on the whims of men. The image of God that is currently popular is, a, is, a, is an image of this doting, distracted father struggling with this heartbroken desperation to get people to accept a Savior whom they, whom they have no real interest in and have no real sense of need that they have for Him. And so to persuade these self-sufficient souls to respond to the generous offer of the gospel, God will do almost anything. He will resort to Madison Avenue or Hollywood or corporate tactics and speak to men in the chummiest kind of language. And that, ladies and gentlemen, I would say to you is a religious romanticism that doesn't exist, but is in reality. It often uses flattering and sometimes embarrassing terms to describe God. Like, how about this one? God is neat. Isn't God neat? What? Is that the best we got? But somehow, in the evangelicalism of 21st century, we have made man the star of the show. And we've told him that he's got the key in his pocket. And I would suggest to you that that is anything but kind. They must be told this. All in the hope that it will arouse their slumbering souls and that they would see the urgent need that they have for a Savior. And the only Savior there is is Christ Jesus the Lord. Our Father, I, I pray that you will forgive us if we have in any way communicated a lack of urgency in the message of the gospel. And I pray, O oh God, that you would uh, use this passage as well as numerous others to remind men that there is a day when you will say, do not pray for them any longer. They will offer all kinds of sacrifices, but I will not hear them. Lord, I don't know where that line is. I don't know when it's enough. But I do know that it exists. And so, oh God, would you use this church to ever more, ever more passionately, ever more urgently plead with men that today, they must do something about the estrangement between them and God. And that the only remedy available 
is the Savior that you provided, Christ Jesus. Make him real to many to whom he is not real. Make him real to them today. We ask it in his name. Amen.